again? Yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Prefer Not To Weekly Sometime Cocktail Hour. Always cocktail hour. With your hosts, Josh and Kate. As is frequently the case, I am not Kate. I'm not Josh. Every week, Kate and I have a cocktail, and we talk about it, and we decide whether we like it or want to make it again, <laughs> and we share that information with you. We talk a little bit about the history of the drink and why people decided to use liquor as medicine at some point in the past. That seems to be kind of our main theme at this point. It really does. Then we talk about some movies that we saw that week and anything else that we watched on TV while living a life of leisure. How was your leisurely life this week, Kate? My leisurely life was filled with a lot of pain. Lady pain. Don't want to go into too much detail, but a lot of lady pain. Yeah, it happens. Yep. I'm given to understand. Uh, Specifically, it happens every month. Like clockwork. It's crazy. Like a month clock. A clock month. Like a really slow clock. So what are we drinking this week in honor of your menzies? It's not in honor of my menzies. If I had it, we'd be just chugging red wine right now um, if it was in honor of my menzies. We're actually having pink gin this week. That doesn't sound, strictly speaking, like a cocktail. It sounds like a liquor and a color. Um, how does it taste, Josh? It tastes like a liquor and a color. Yep, Okay. So um, pink gin is apparently technically a cocktail. It's two parts gin, two or three dashes of Angostura, although I've seen some recipes that are like, add as much Angostura to this as you want, upwards of five. Um, Did you just wipe your mouth on my fucking college graduation gown? Possibly. (laughs) All right. Okay. Sorry. It's two parts gin, a couple of dashes of Angostura bitters, lemon zest, or a rind for a garnish. Um, ice can be added, but not traditionally. It's also served with a glass of water or with water added on top. I'll tell you what it tastes like. Mm-hmm. It tastes like somebody, um, so they have a bar in their house. Yeah. And they really only have the one tumbler. Okay. <laughs> and they had a Manhattan. And then they didn't really wash it out very much. Mm-hmm. And then they made a very dry martini. All right. Here goes. I'm going to try it. Yep. That's exactly what that tastes like. <laughs> Oh, man. It tastes like a martini made in a dirty Manhattan glass. Which, frankly, uh, better than a martini with a lot of vermouth. I mean, Angostura bitters are better than... All right, so let's get into the history of the drink. Uh, Traditionally, it's made with Plymouth Gin, which is a brand, and uh, is sweeter than most London-based gins, meaning that it has less juniper in it, which I'm getting a lot of juniper from this particular beverage right now. Mm Mm-hmm. it was invented or created by members of the Royal Navy to cure seasickness. We've talked about this on the Here podcast before. But uh, Angostura bitters were invented to soothe upset stomachs. I think ultimately all of these medicinal applications of cocktails were used to cure consciousness. <laughs> like, I think, no, seriously, I think the, the idea was you were sick and if you dulled, reduced, or entirely eliminated your consciousness by passing out, that was what was medicating it. Well, I feel like this drink in particular is more of a um, beverage that was meant to both cure a hangover and also cause one for the next morning, if that makes sense. Well, I mean, I think it would. I think here's one thing that I can guarantee you that this uh, cures at about a 90% rate. Uh, The desire to drink a cold martini. (laughs) Because it is essentially a martini with a little bit of Angostura. No, it is. Well, it's more Angostura. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so the pink gin is uh, traditionally enjoyed by members of the Royal Navy, specifically the upper class uh, 
officers to cure seasickness, like we just said. Um, we've talked about it on the podcast before. Angostura bitters was invented by a uh, doctor who was serving in the Spanish army. Dr. Johann Gottlieb Benjamin Siegert. Siegert? Siegert. Dr. S- Dr. Siegert invents, <laughs> invents the booze cure for nausea. Mm, you'll have to limo no, juice. No, you'll have to forgive me. We just watched a bunch of uh, Werner Herzog clips on YouTube, and so I guess I'm talking with a very exaggerated German accent. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the point of the bitters aspect. The bitters were supposed to cure seasickness and general stomach ailments with British uh, Navy men. Oh, wait, let me interrupt and give the standard disclaimers, because I can never remember to do them right away. <laughs> Standard disclaimer number one, Kate and I are not very good at cocktails. I mean, we're getting better, but we do not know terribly much about cocktails. So we will probably murder your favorite drink. Although, if your favorite drink is the pink gin, then you must be like an 80-year-old British man. Right. Well, you know, I think um, Ralph Richardson is a big fan of the show. (laughs) And uh, uh, the uh, Duke of Edinburgh Mm -hmm. is a big fan. Mm Mm-hmm. We watched that thing on TV where there was the cargo cult that worshipped the Duke of Edinburgh. It was on one of those episodes of uh, uh, An Idiot Abroad. He went to some island in, like, Papua New Guinea. I feel like I missed that one. I do know that the Duke of Edinburgh, uh, Prince Philip, was actually the namesake of the Prince and Sleeping Beauty. There, there's a, No, it was like, and they had pictures of him up everywhere. Oh. And, like, he was, like, he was, you know, because these cargo cults, they, you know, they worship everything. Uh, you know, so that's first thing, uh, is that drinking causes cargo cults. No, yep. we we are bad at cocktails, and we apologize. Uh, the second thing is that alcoholism is a serious disease, uh, like tetanus or arthritis. If you have arthritis or tetanus, you go to a doctor, and if you have alcoholism, you should probably do the same. You don't need to have a drink to enjoy our show, and in fact, it probably won't help. Um, I also want to point out at this particular juncture that you need to keep up with your vaccinations. You need to get a tetanus vaccination every 10 years, folks. It doesn't renew itself. It's not a one-time deal. And if you get the tetanus, uh, you know, that's part of the Tdap. So you'll get uh, the pertussis booster, which, hey, adults, you're not done with pertussis until pertussis is done with you. So if you're an adult and you haven't had a pertussis booster in the last decade, go get one. And it's only every 10 years. We all know that shots suck, but... And you will save babies' lives. And every 10 years, there you go. And really, like, is there more of an easy way to feel morally superior then getting a tiny shot for free because your health department will give it to you for free and, and and feeling like you saved a baby. Like, to me, I can just go get drunk on that. Like, whoa, I did hard work today saving babies with my mm-hmm. vaccine booster. Yep. So if you really if you want an easy way to get a sort of smug sense of uh, superiority, get, get your Tdap booster. Get a stranger to shoot you up with something in your arm. Yeah. Okay. Anyhow. And he will be shooting, shooting you up with moral righteousness. <laughs> so, um... Like I was saying before, bitters were invented to soothe upset stomachs and cure nausea, so they became very popular among the British naval fleet because they were one of the largest at the time in the 19th century. And then the gin was added to make the consumption of bitters easier because people don't just chug bitters. So it became a favorite among British What with them being a, a little bitter? A little bitter. This cocktail was very popular in Britain throughout the late 19th century up until the uh, 1960s when it was kind of de facto replaced by a cocktail called the Horse's Neck, which is what I was actually thinking about doing for this week's podcast. But the pink gin seemed, well, everyone at Prefer Not To loves, we, we all love our gin. Wouldn't you agree, Josh? Everyone, there's like two people in this closet. 
Is there like a massive production team down there <laughs> testing out liquors with white uniforms? That's and... true. But I was going to point out we are privy to gin cocktails. Yeah. Uh, privy to them? Partial, I think. Partial. Privy and partial, it's like the same thing. No. Whatever, we're partial to them. You know, privy is a hole in the ground that you shit in. Yeah. Well, all right, so uh, they were replaced by the horse's a neck, partial which is... is a thing that fills a hole in your mouth. So the horse's neck is actually a cocktail that's made um, from brandy and ginger ale and bitters. So there's kind of like a familial descendant relationship there, mm-hmm. but uh, we'll save that for a different podcast. And Josh, that is the pink gin. The genealogy of it, as it were. Yeah. You know, we think of gin as a sort of quintessentially English liquor, but it actually came from uh, the continent, from Holland and uh, the Low Countries and such. I I mentioned earlier that there's uh, you're supposed to use sweet gin with this as Mm -hmm. opposed to dry London-esque based gin. And I asked the guy at the ABC store for some help, and he pointed this one out to me and was very helpful. And then I noticed when I was making the drinks that this is actually a gin that is produced in France. There you go. So I kind of feel like we're betraying the home country. No, I think, um, well, you know, the only reason that gin became sort of a, like a signature English liquor was there were protective uh, trade laws. It came over uh, when, I think, from Holland, when the, oh. the Netherlands. So this is apparently a uh, brand of gin that is a little bit less juniper It's not Plymouth gin, which is what we were supposed to use, but Plymouth gin was actually like $45. And uh, here at Pernatu, we are a little cheap when it comes to our liquor, as much as we would like not to be. Um, We're not cheap. We're restrained by circumstance. There you go. So if anybody ever has any um, recommendations or if they want to donate bottles of bitters or grenadine or We're good on lime bitters. juice. Yeah, we're good on bitters, actually. Or vermouth. No, don't send us vermouth, please, for the love of God. Well, no, that would keep us from spending. And, you know, I keep wondering if good vermouth would be different. I, I read a, an article about vermouth that said people hate vermouth because a couple of reasons. A, they buy cheap vermouth to begin with. Mm. And then B, you know, it's just wine. So... Most people get vermouth and they buy one bottle and they open it up and it sits on their damn bar forever. I mean, if you did that with wine, it would go bad and taste like ass too. True, but it, it wine actually does – okay, here's the difference between vermouth and wine. Vermouth tastes like ass the second you open it. Well, I think, again, it may be a function of – it tasted bad because we got we have never spent money on a forty dollar bottle of vermouth or something. And we won't. <laughs> maybe we'll get rich someday. I mean, maybe if I become a millionaire, then we will definitely be living the high life. Hey, you got a job interview? I do. You excited? I'm a little. I am filled with trepidation. I think you do. I think you do well. Um, I just you know this isn't. I recently had a job interview before this one, and it was a lot of uh, strife and false hope, and I didn't get it. I was like number two. And uh, I was like, so they only interviewed like two people for the job, seriously. I was number Mm. two. So it's kind of like a mixed bag. Like you feel really honored that you got that far and that you were one of two people chosen to come in for an interview. Were you interviewing on the same day as the other person? I have no idea. Because that's always the worst. Like when you see the other people that you're interviewing for the job. I don't think so because this was such a lengthy process Mm -hmm. that... If they were, like, double timing or something, it would have been – I feel like it would have been very obvious. The point is I have a new job interview, and hopefully I'm feeling hopeful. Here's one of the things that's awful. And if you are successful enough in your career, you'll eventually see this, and it's not something that I wish on anybody. But you'll eventually be working, and you will see them bring in somebody to interview who you know they're interviewing to replace you. (laughs) And that is never fun. That's a very dour thought, Josh. It happens. Man, it's capitalism, baby. Well, when I got my current job, actually, one of the first shifts I worked was with the person that I was replacing because she was quitting. And I realized that a couple of months later and at the time it it 
I'm not going to say it wasn't it wasn't awkward at the time because I had no idea. I was like, oh, hey, new coworker. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, when it finally clicked in my brain, I was like, well, damn. <laughs> you know, but, you know, I, I am probably not representative of your future uh, experience because I am not uh, super employable. I'm fun to have around, except when you need work done. That is slightly true. Yeah, there you go. Hey, speaking of not getting work done, did we watch any movies this week? We did. What did we watch? Uh, We watched... We watched a few things, but I think the thing we're going to talk about today is... So we watched the movie um, The People Under the Stairs. Mm -hmm. This is a movie directed by Wes Craven. Mm -hmm. So it was number one for one week in November of 1991. It uh, starred Brendan Quinton Adams as the main character, Everett McGill and Wendy Roby of... Who you may recognize as a loving couple on Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks fame. And uh, Ving Rhames, kind of a... They were uh, Big Ed from the gas station and his wife, Nadine, obsessed with drapery runners. Yeah. You might also recognize Everett McGill as that guy that tells uh, Muad'Dib everything he knows about the uh, Freyan culture in Dune, which is what I knew him from. I've seen Twin Peaks. He is a David Lynch favorite. He is indeed. And with good reason. I mean, like that timber is very He does have resonating. Very... So describe the movie to us. Set us a scene. So the movie takes place on the eve of the main character. His name is Fool. Nickname. His nickname is Fool. On his uh, the eve of his 13th birthday where his uh, sister lays out a couple of tarot card deals for him and figures out that he is, like, you know, aligned with the card of the Fool, which is where his nickname comes from. His mother is dying of cancer. They're being evicted from their ghetto apartment in Los Angeles. And so Fool decides to partner up with a couple of burglars, who one of whom is played by Ving Rhames, who is apparently like... Was it Los Angeles? I didn't even notice. I thought it was just some sort of nondescript American city style It, it city. read that way in the movie, but in everything I've read about it, it says it takes place in Los Angeles. Okay. So uh, Ving Rhames is like the pimp of his sister or like a really good I friend. I think he's just a criminal associate in in the neighborhood who knows who knows and the family. So Ving Rhames um, conscripts young fool <laughs> to become his like burgling apprentice and they are going to rob the house of the landlord mm-hmm. who owns their current squalid kind of... Whom they are given to believe has a fortune in gold coins buried somewhere in the house. Now, exactly. th- th- let me let me back this up. This is a standard. This is a merger of a couple of standard childhood urban myths. The house of the recl- the rich people who are reclusive and have secretly have a pile of gold buried in their house, and a second one, the house that abducts kids and nobody ever sees the kids again. Right. Yeah. The spooky house that kids walk by and they go, "There's the old Lucas place or right. whatever," and kind of like everyone mm-hmm. avoids. Is that why? You know why. I'm lonely. I got soup. He's got, he does. He does like, he loves to make soup for people. Mm-hmm. So uh, Fool and Ving Rhames and another guy go to the house to try and figure out ways that they can like burgle their way in. Fool pretends to be a Boy Scout for a little bit mm-hmm. so that he can get entry to see like where all of the alarm systems are. Eventually, the other guy who isn't Ving Rhames goes in pretending to be a gas man inspecting and mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't come back out. Yeah, it doesn't work well. So Ving and Fool decide that they're going to go in and figure out what's going on. And then from there... Well, Little Fool discovers that, uh, first of all, he just finds the body of their associate. Yep. Who's uh, been mangled in some way and also scared white as a sheet. And which dusty. leads him instantly to conclude that he was scared to death. Right? Yep. Uh, and he also sort of hears some skittering and scuttering of uh, creatures down in the basement. Meanwhile, we've also seen the Everett McGill and Wendy Roby, who we'll call Mon Pa which I believe is what they get called in the movie. Yeah, it is. 
Uh, and a daughter upstairs uh, being disciplined mm-hmm. uh, for the house's cardinal rule, which is uh, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. She uh, misplaces a fork and a mysterious hand comes out of the wall and gives it back to her. Out of the grate, not just out of the wall. Right. Out of like you Out know. of a grate in the wall. Yeah. Right. So they've got this kid. And meanwhile, there are scuttering creatures down in the basement. So a uh, young fool gets trapped in the house, as does Ving Rhames. Fool goes up to see Ving Rhames, uh, at which point they get in an encounter with a large dog. Uh, Prince. <laughs> that they managed to electrify by doing some sort of <laughs> chain. It was like, you know what it is? It's like if, um, you know how in tag, when you play tag, there's electricity? Like mm-hmm. you could tag, you get, you get safe if you're touching home base and uh, you're touching someone else who's touching home base. It's that version of electricity, but with electricity. They touch yeah. a, an electrified doorknob so, and zap a dog. So Ving Rhames is trying to get out of the house, and his main plan is we got to get rid of this dog first because this is before Wendy Roby and Everett McGill have shown back up. And so he puts Fool out his bait. Um, he sticks his hand out so that the dog is, like, trying to maul his arm and has Fool drag him over to an electrified doorknob, puts his hand on it, and then the electricity goes through Fool to Ving mm-hmm. Rhames to the dog. And that's just science. <laughs> Which is just science. Also, Ving Rhames is wearing one of those really conspicuous, and you usually only see this on TV when they're dealing with animals, but, like, the really padded arm underneath his shirt. So it was very clear that, like, the dog had been trained to bite this thickly toweled appendage. There was a lot of shots like that, like side shots, where you would see this very animatronic dog head or his arm being like, this is not a stunt. This is not a stunt arm at all. Right. So anyhow, so they do that. They get the dog in. But then at at that point, uh, Wendy Roby and uh, Everett McGill, Ma and Pa, have returned, correct? Yeah, from their trip to the liquor store. Which they they own. Right. And they were collecting money from the liquor store. Uh, At that point, Ving Rhames gets killed somehow. Shotgun. Just straight up shotgun to the face by uh, Everett McGill. To the chest. Right. And dumped down a uh, body chute. (laughs) Which in, in the house. Every suburban house right. has. And fed upon by mysterious hands down in the basement. Uh, well, Everett McGill chops him up and kind of flings parts of Ving Rhames at the wall filled with mysterious hands. Right. He's then, he then pursues young fool who uh, ambles through the house. Um, the dog also starts to... The dog gets up uh, out of being shocked into consciousness and chases uh, the fool through the house. At one point, chases him into a bathroom, and then uh, young fool punches the dog in the face to uh, hilarious. But this is not the only element of slapstick in this movie. There's a lot of there's a lot slapstick uh, that comes out of nowhere and that made me laugh. So I guess it, it yeah, had that. Yeah, if you thought that electrocuting a dog through a three person electrocution ring and then a dog getting punched in the face was the height of slapstick was a little comedy, broad, right? Just Wayne. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we'll talk about it. I mean, Everett McGill basically is acting in a completely different movie. He's acting in uh, – uh, he's he's making people regret he didn't cast get cast in the Daniel Stern role in Home Alone. Yeah, really. Uh, because he is running around like a crazy person and making a lot of, Ooh, I got punched faces. Yeah, there's a lot of um, – at one point he gets hit over the head with a cinder block. Oh, yeah. And uh, survives, first of all. A couple he's not of times because he gets hit by a brick on the head dropped through the chimney. 
also true, yeah. yeah uh, toward the end. Uh, him and Wendy Rubin, they have a very, um, very startling resilience in this movie. Also, so he's chasing Young Fool. And most of the movie is, is Young Fool being chased through the house and then for some reason leaving the house and coming back, which we'll talk about, which makes no sense. But the parts that involve Fool being chased through the house by Everett McGill are at least competent slapstick. Uh, although Everett McGill's character, Pa, is wearing a gimp suit for reasons that I'm never... <laughs> no, I mean, did we miss why he's... No. wearing the gimp suit. I mean, it's funny because no, he's like running around the house shrieking in a gimp suit, shooting a shotgun through the walls. Uh, but, okay, so through events, uh, young uh, fool becomes friends with the girl. What was the girl's name? Alice. Alice. So they become... The daughter. Uh, they become mild friends. Alice says that there's... Uh, that basically the house... The creatures in the basement are all kids who failed to live up to the rules that uh, Ma and Pa have said. And they're all boys, by the way. Right. And they have all been uh, either blinded or had their tongues cut out or had their ears cut off uh, for hearing, seeing, or speaking evil. Uh, There's one, she says, named, what was his name? Roach. Roach, who's the fun one who lives in the walls and drives Pa crazy. He got out. Right. He got out. But he stays in the house to drive Pa crazy. Uh, and lives in the walls, which are, by the way, uh, the, the wall, the crawl spaces in this house are, you know, two or more feet wide. And, and able. To, I, I get the idea that the house was supposed to have been constructed that way, but we never sort of got the Yeah, half this house is just a lot of random secret passages right. and, um, like, room and walls. Like, it, it's, it gets to a point in this movie, especially by the third act, where all of the secret passages had to have been installed on purpose. Like, right. there's no way you can actually believe that, like... A weird man-child with no tongue, like carved them out of the house himself. <laughs> so, so, um, so yes. By the so, way, he has no tongue. With the assistance of uh, of Mary, Alice, Alice, and Roach, Roach shows a young fool where the money is hidden, which turns out not to be a myth, uh, and he finds a few coins. Uh, he escapes from the house, encourages Mary to leave, but Mary does not leave with Alice. him. Alice, to leave. Why do I keep saying Mary? I don't. Uh, Alice does not leave with him, and uh, as he is leaving, she's afraid of the outside. What's Right. As he's leaving, he can see that she is uh, going to be disciplined severely by Ma and Pa. So that's the end of our first big adventure in the house. So Fool goes back to uh, his house and is told by their neighbor the real story of that house. Grandfather. Grandfather. Which is that generation after generation, this family got weirder and creepier and scarier, but they also got richer and richer and, and richer. And greedier. And greedier. They used to be undertakers, and then they moved into real estate and liquor stores. Uh, and they've gotten eviler and eviler and eviler. Let's be honest. Undertakers are pretty – it's a pretty skeezy business. Yeah. So uh, he says, these coins you brought back, they're, they're going to pay your mom's uh, medical bills. They're going to pay your rent for the next 10 years. Until 2000, right. yeah. Uh, but the kid says, you know, I, I got to get back in there. I got to help. There's something I have to do. I have something I have to do. So first he calls ch- uh, the social services and says, uh, I think there's a case of child abuse going on in this house, uh, which I assume he means is Alice, right? The I'm girl. guessing, yeah. Okay, so this is the part where the movie sort of goes off the rails for me. Up to this point, it was like, yeah, this is I'm I'm enjoying it more than I thought I would in the sense that yeah, there's some wacky slapstick and, uh, you know. Nothing... And there's a dog that gets punched in the face. Right. And nothing insane. Uh, well. So, well, you know. 
that. But at this point, the logical implausibilities start to pile upon themselves and uh, it becomes difficult to understand what's going on in the movie. So he calls social services and then the police go over to the house, at which point Wendy Roby decides that sh- to serve them like crudités and have a dinner party or something. Cookie, cookies and coffee, because when they leave, she says, like, I have seen enough of cookies for right. my whole life. So they never ask, like, where the girl is. They never look in the basement, which I can only assume he never mentioned to the police, by the way. There's this whole uh, civilization of Edgar Winter looking children in the basement. I they, had a, they had a sliding um, pantry door over the the, mm-hmm. the passage to the basement, which they remove after the police leave. And um, Pa says, or no, Ma says, like, they didn't ask you about it. And he goes, oh, they never do. And he pushes it back and then it reveals the entrance to the basement, which is filled with weird cannibalistic right. freaks. And furthermore, he doesn't, the kid doesn't go back with the police. Or tell them what's going right, on. Or say, hey, you might want to look behind these things. Or he's just, he he just calls up and assumes that they're going to deal with it or distract enough that he can sneak into the house and free Alice, which makes no sense also. Yeah. Because why wouldn't – I mean, he already has you know, told his parents that he was there. Why wouldn't he go with other adults to free this he child? Either, he either told the police – what was going on in full with full disclosure. Also, by the way, there are at least two recently murdered bodies in this house. Oh, yeah. And they didn't listen or he just neglected to tell the police, which is like, why? Furthermore, the police had stopped at the house and been told that this was the van of these people, these these robbers who had last been seen robbing a bank. And yet they don't like impound the van. They don't. They just leave it. Yeah, they just leave it there. So, uh, Fool's back in the house trying to figure out where Alice is, and uh, there's a whole couple of comedy errors slapstick there. I don't even remember that comedy of errors bit. Just... Well, where, like, you know, he sneaks up to their bedroom, and it turns out that... Oh, uh, well, they've misled Ma him with a... have right. done, like, they've recorded the, um... So they, yeah, and they send the dog after him again, and... No, the dog's dead at this No, 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 they haven't... The dog is not dead, because this is where Pa kills the dog... No, ...by cause... stabbing into the wall with his no. bayonet. No, 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 that's, that's before Fool escapes for the first oh, okay. time, because when Ma is going up to bed, she goes, gotta get a new dog oh, tomorrow. Right. Yeah, she, he managed to get uh, Pa to bayonet, bayonet his own dog through the wall. Prince. Um, poor friends. Poor Gand. Also, by the way, uh, through a lot of their conversations, there's like vague racist illusions going on. I think they say the N-word a couple of times. They and, almost do. Yeah. So uh, then, meanwhile, while Fool is then running through the quarters of the house, his sister and grandfather have amassed a, a, a <laughs> posse of neighborhood folks to go and uh, beat on the door and demand answers yeah, from who the family. Yeah, who all live in buildings owned by the uh, Robison right. family. So uh, presumably all of these people then have been told... Some version of the story. And my question to you, Kate, is if you were telling people this story, yeah, what would you consider to be the core elements of the story that you wouldn't leave out? Of, of what story? Of the family? Like why? Of what of would, the family like, in the Hey, house? I went to this house. Oh. I would think that on the top, say, three <laughs> would be the army of earless, eyeless, and tongueless Edgar Winter ghouls in the basement. Josh is saying that because... One of them really does look like Edgar Winter. Well, they all have this sort of uh, blanched expression, and one of them has, like, rocker hair. Uh, and he is, so. Uh, um, all right, to answer your question, I probably would mention A, um, the, the army of cannibalistic freaks downstairs. Right. Which, by the way, strictly speaking, they are chuds. <laughs> they are cannibalistic, they are humanoid, and they dwell underground. 
um, true, not by choice, but yeah. I'd mentioned them. I would also mention the fact that there is a, uh, a teenage girl right. in Ninja the Matt. house who's never been outside. I would mention uh, Gimp Suit, Secret Passages. Uh, I don't think I would mention the Gimp Suit right away. That's not like part, that's not right Oh, up I think there. if I were telling the story, uh, Everett McGill running around, screaming in a hillbilly voice, shooting through the walls with his shotgun while wearing a Gimp Suit. I got to say, that might go ahead like, of the uh, Edgar Winter Ghouls. <sighs> Well, disagree. Agree, disagree. Okay. Everett McGill like starts off this movie being very silent and very forceful. Like he's just this creepy guy. But then he turns into like a borderline retarded exactly, hillbilly. Exactly, exactly. He starts off being like, um, you know, where you, you can tell that Wendy Robinson is like kind of in control and then she like tells him like, you know, you gotta beat Alice because she she spoke up to me and he's very silent and foreboding and then once they finally give him the chance to talk and to do stuff he turns into this blithering idiot who like prances Got up and down fang. prances up and down with his shotgun with a bayonet attached to it and goes I killed him I killed him yeah I he does like a him. weird dance like I killed him and then it's like also... a Walter Houston Treasure of the Seamer Madre type dance exactly and he's also in a gimp suit for like 90% of this movie no <laughs> no I would say only only a third of his scenes are begimped. Most of them are in the last part of this movie, though. Anyhow, so then, uh, through the assistance of the titular people under the stairs, who turn out just to be oppressed children who want freedom just who as much as anyone. love the anyone, sweet taste of human flesh. Uh, right. They, they are cannibalistic, but, you know, it was more cannibalism of necessity <laughs> than of predilection. I think it's like, you know, if you are a vegan and you get, uh, you know, stranded, stranded in a yeah. boat, you're going to eat a beef jerky. And nobody's going to nobody's yeah. going to say you're not a, be- a vegan. Nobody's going to call you a meat eater. I think it's fair to call those kids cannibals. Um, there is a point where uh, Everett McGill like strings up Bing Rhames dead body because mm. spoilers, he gets killed very early on in the movie. We, we told them that. And uh, and carves out parts of his torso and just flings it to them through their like plywood structure. Yeah, like awful, like just like he's feeding slop. And they all go, Ugh. and also they all have flashlights. Yeah, I don't get they that. They have either. flashlights for some reason. So anyhow, anyway. the kids uh, they help him escape and they show they show fool to where the 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 big dragon horde of money Ed, is. Edgar Winters shows him. Right. Fool uses the money, the sound of the clinking money to lure Everett McGill down to the basement and kill him. Yeah, and then uh, Wendy, what's her face, Ma, mm-hmm. is uh, killed by the the people Alice. under the stairs. Just killed by Alice, who then drags her to the people under the stairs, right? Well, she's fighting with her in the kitchen with like a knife. There's oh, a scene right. where she like stabs her with a knife, and she goes, even though she's mortally wounded, the the Ma character says something about like you're a dirty girl. And she's always and, saying like, go comes, to hell and go to hell, and like comes at her, and they end up wrestling on top of the stairs, and then the people from under the stairs. Because when they were on the stairs... Pop right. out and grab her and subdue her, and they end up like kind of like tearing her apart. And then uh, the house explodes, and a bunch of money rains out of the chimney. because yeah, there's dynamite downstairs, and by the way. The, by the way, and the ghouls just like wander <laughs> out of the house yeah. and like get some money, too. <laughs> the people under the like, stairs... Like, they're having a party, and they're just like, hey, all right, I'm going to go. I'm going to... My chud day is no more. <laughs> These 
poor bastards who have been living underground right. for at least 10 years. All of them get released at once. And they just kind of like look up and see like the money coming down through them in the air. And they just kind of go, they kind of go, oh, this is cool. And they yeah. just like wander off into the well, darkness. You know, they got to figure and that the, the movie... police don't care about them since they didn't actually look for them when they were at the fucking house. Like Edgar Winters comes out and is just kind of looking around. He sees like this girl over here and this girl over here and like the money raining down from the sky and he just goes I'm gonna go over here and he walks off screen and then we end the movie with um, a rousing chorus of this rap song called Do the Right Thing. Right. Which apparently means blow the house up don't tell the cops about the zombie children uh, kill kill the dog with a bayonet and all will be forgiven as long as you kill the guy in the gimp suit. And it, it it's do the right thing. Like the song, like the chorus is like, do the right thing. I think do it's the a, right thing. Okay, this, so this movie was from what, 1991? Yeah. So I think it's just a function of someone having seen do the right thing two years before and like, there's not a song called do the right thing. I'm going to ride this train. Well, I understand that. What I don't understand is like, in what circumstance would someone go into a house and see weird people underneath the stairs? Right, I don't understand what the right thing. What well, is the right fool thing? Fool did not do the right thing because he didn't tell the cops everything. But who among us, if they survived that kind of experience, wouldn't tell the cops that that is what they just uh, right. came from? And who would go back into the house without it? It makes no sense. Why would you? You know, the, the you have a, an army of adults, literally, who you have told, and yet you go you. You infiltrate the house, solid snake style, for some reason. It yeah. doesn't, doesn't make a lot of it. Okay, so what did you like about this movie? What did you like about this movie? Um, the movie had a really good setup. I thought that the, um, like, the it premise. had a good premise. And there's a couple of shots when they're first establishing the creepiness of the house that really work. Like, there's one where Alice, her mom is like, Alice, where's your fork? I gave you a fork with this. Give me your fork, you dirty little girl. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I must have dropped it. And she's, right. like, crawling around on her bedroom floor. When the hand reaches through and the grate. A, a creepy, like, very pale, like, hand with, like, awfully yellowed fingernails reaches through the grate and hands her and she taps him like okay thank you so much she taps the hand and it goes back in the grate You're that like, was hmm, creepy this is a different relationship with the monsters yeah I liked that I thought but that that I was unsettling that. there's a lot of other establishing shots like with weird dolls like when Fool and Vingrams first break in of things like leading them further into the house and stuff mm-hmm. like that and that was really striking and it had potential See what I liked. I liked Edward McGill going completely batshit over the top. Also, yep. Was very enjoyable. No one ever looked at him and said, hey, Everett, turn it down. Less. We need less. A little bit less. No. And he gave more. And that was fun. You know, I liked that. And um, I, I thought that was good. That was mostly what I liked was him going crazy. And I, I like mean, the idea that the, 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 the people under the stairs weren't really actually monsters. Yeah. I found this movie very enjoyable. I liked the premise. I liked how batshit it became. I also liked the makeup effects. It was very. Oh, much... and the other thing I liked was uh, Ving Rhames' understanding of the U.S. government. Oh my god! Uh, at one point, the kid says something to him that he doesn't believe, and uh, Ving Rhames says to him, "Yeah, that's right. Sure, that's true. And the president's gonna make me secretary of pussy." Which I just... <laughs> Um, he is, the Secretary of Pussy me, is in charge of America's vital strategic <laughs> pussy reserve. Which led me, like, later after he dies, and he's being chopped up for the freaks under the stairs. For me to be like, man, that guy was a dignitary. Have some respect. I know. He should be accorded a state funeral. Damn he gets it. To lie, in, lie in state at the pussy department. <laughs> 
what that means for a second. Let's dissect that. Does that mean that he's in charge of all pussies in the United States, or is he in charge of fucking women? And like, I think it's a matter of constitutional interpretation. I think if you're a strict oh, constructionalist, no. he's really just in charge of the the regulation. This is only on a federal level because you don't. It isn't incorporated. Of course. Of right. Course. It doesn't. You know, unless you buy the Fourteenth Amendment incorporation doctrine, then the secretary of pussy doesn't don't. have power over states uh pussy regulation yeah or, fuck or... the 14th amendment you heard it here i'm gonna edit that out because that's a good amendment <laughs> no i think uh, but you know it depends on how you construct it's, it you know it's a reflection of our nation's misplaced priorities that the pussy department has become, been so underfunded in especially recent since decades. the the office of homeland security came into like mm-hmm. ever since then there's like a, a very strict relationship between like office of pussy after clinton left went down and office of homeland security when Bush homeland came in. sick sex hurity what what okay i need to get some water the studio is hot as blue blazes it really is All right, we're back. Hey, how's the pink gin treating you? It's very bitter. Yeah? So Laura was gone this last week, and we did not comport ourselves admirably. What do you mean? You know, the, I think the lactose consumption oh, was a problem. Yeah, yeah. you know what? I can't even defend myself. No, it's, I was trying to. And I, I would get, we made baked pasta, uh, like three I trays asked, of it. I asked Josh to make right. baked pasta. Uh, with lots of cheese. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there were some ice cream drumsticks in the fridge that got eaten, too. I didn't eat those. No. You ate those? No. I, I would get up in the middle of the night and eat those. Because I get, like, a sweet thing in the middle of the night that I need. So, you know, honestly, if I was president, mm-hmm. uh, anything with lactose on it mm-hmm. would have uh, – not. it would not just be a warning label, but it would be, like, a see-in-the-dark warning label. Because my big problem with milk products is that I get up in the middle of the night – <laughs> and I eat them, so it would have to be like a glow. In the, better yet, okay. So here, here it is. All lactose products. Yeah. Warning label. Yeah. It's glow in the dark, yeah. and and when you touch it, it reads uh, the warning label like uh, like in the voice of Nick Nolte. Why Nick Nolte? Because I think that, that is a voice that if you heard it in the middle of the night <laughs> when you were grabbing at a milk product, you would listen to. <laughs> you know. Let that milk down. You know. I think you would listen to Nick Nolte telling you to put the milk down. Don't you think? I just, I agree. Um, I don't, I worry why you wouldn't Why I wouldn't regulate my own behavior? Own? Because yeah. I don't, because I've lived on this planet 40 years and I clearly cannot govern my consumption of dairy without an artificial Nick Nolte. Well, I'm just saying, like, uh, Laura was making ice cream the other night, and it was pink, and she was, like, doling it out. And I was like, oh, is that mm-hmm. strawberry ice cream? Yeah, I ate, ate the shit out of it that night. I know, I know you did. I know yeah. you did. And uh, I, she said, no, it's it's not strawberry. It's peppermint or, you know, some kind of mint. And I was just like, oh. Mm-hmm. And I lost all interest in eating it at that point. Yeah, by the way, have we talked on the show about how spearmint and peppermint, how I don't think there's... I think we y- did, it has to the, be some sort of like robot taster to tell the difference. Um, I know we talked about it. With it was the on one of the lost shows. It yeah. was with the men julep. I don't yeah. know if it ever got. It was put on one of the lost the shows. Show. Yeah, spearmint and peppermint. I think it's just a, it's just like a elevator lift type thing. It's a lorry truck. I just I feel like you're you're an interesting person because I don't get up in the night and well, I think. Thank you. 
and think, man, I want cheese. I usually eat cheese before I go to bed and wake up in the middle of the night. Don't even gotta hate yourself for eating that cheese. Wake up in the middle of the night and go, why on earth did I eat that fucking mozzarella? Like, I don't. Yeah. Uh, first of all, if I wake up in the middle of the night, I usually just want like a glass of water and I want to go back to bed. No. I need I need something grizzled and uh that has world weary to tell me not to eat the lactose. I'm just saying. Hey, so So wait, 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 wait. Here's a question. If Nick Nolte was in our kitchen, if we employed him to be in our kitchen mm-hmm. like 24/7 and I he think... woke up in the middle of the night and he went to the okay, kitchen so to get like all... a, some cheese. Okay, so first of all, Kate, I think you know me well enough to know you would have to advise me of this well in advance. Well, yeah, it's 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 taken for granted. Like, because if I get up in the middle of the night and Nick Nolte is there, it's I'm going to be startled. I know. I'm saying it's taken for granted. Like you, me, Laura, we all took a, a vow. Uh-huh. We we pinned. Sure. We just kind of like you know. With all of our massive disposable money, exactly. We We're decided like, we would Nick hire we want grizzled, <laughs> surly actor Nick Nolte. Please come hang out in our kitchen and act as our lactose right. warden. Be our lactose sheriff. <laughs> so, Josh, I'm just trying to ask you. If, Josh, if you got up in the middle of the night and you went to the kitchen mm-hmm. and Nick Nolte was guarding the refrigerator, mm-hmm. what would you do? I would. Here's the I think it would be just enough of a dissonance. Just a momentary dissonance. This is provided that I had been warned ahead of yeah, time. Yeah, but you know that he's about coming. The, yeah. About the Nolte gambit. That if I got up in the middle of the night and I was like, I need, you know, I need a hunk cheese. of, I hanker for a hunk of cheese. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then I walked into the kitchen and then I saw Nick Nolte like just hanging out, you know, like reading Jet Magazine in front of the fridge. I would be like, what, what? Oh, Nick Nolte's him. Oh, I hired Nick Nolte. Like he would probably not actually have to say anything in, to me. But right. it would be enough to wake me out of my sleepiness to then remember that I don't need to put cheese in my gut. Okay, here's a question. What if you got up and you went to the fridge to get some cheese or ice cream or whatever, some kind of lactose, mm-hmm. and you grab it, and then every time you grab it, Nick Nolte comes out of the shadows and is like, Josh, you should no, have No, that's that. I would be dead. That would It would happen once. I mean, if you want to kill me, if you want to kill me, you don't even have to. I mean, you would just have to. Like, honestly, if you want to kill me, you don't even have to hire Nick Nolte. You just have to rig the cheese in the refrigerator to, like, when I pick it up, to just cut the TV on playing 48 hours at full volume. And that would be enough to really, to just give me, like, down and out in Beverly Hills. So, just, like, just pull that up and I'd be. So it's basically sudden death or nothing with you when it comes to stopping the lactose addiction. No, I just. No. Are you listening? I just need to be warned if there is going to be a Nolte in my kitchen. That's all. Okay? I'm just okay. And if there is a Nolte in your kitchen, you're going to kind of react. He's slowly. like he's the, he is the string on my finger. Okay, but he's a Nolte around the cheese to remind me not to eat the cheese. That's all. So hey, if you want to get in touch with us, <laughs> we are on the internet at pntcast.wordpress.com. Uh, we're on the Twitter at, at @pntcast. We're on Tumblr. Tumblr. At mm-hmm. pntcast at tumblr.com. Mm-hmm. If you want to find us on the Facebook, search for prefer not to. We would really, really like a review on iTunes if you listen to the show. Like, honestly, if you hate it, 
just tell us because we need constructive criticism and I really can't take it despite what Gabe thinks. Uh, so, you know, whatever. It's like, you know, you take it. We crave it, really. So, and we love letters to the editor because otherwise we just have to read uh, letters that people write to other newspapers, which is not fun at all, which we will do in a moment. Yeah, and it's not fun, so for you or for us. No, so. shut up. Of course, it's hilarious fun. It's great. It's wacky, great comedy fun for them. It's trying to, like, blackmail them. Yeah, because people love being blackmailed over a free thing that they listen to for an hour. Oh, hey, uh, a couple of bit, uh, bits of Eddie Murphy news uh, before we... <gasps> oh. Right, before we go uh, into the letter to the editor. You saw the Beverly Hills Cup 4. It was going to happen. I did, I did. This is the thought that occurred to me. is like, I don't think in 1985, if you... Had it said that you know, hey, in you know, in thirty years they're going to be making, going to be making Beverly Hills Cop uh, four. Mm-hmm. I don't think if you had said to someone, hey, you know, I wonder if they can get J- uh, Judge Reinhold. I don't like oh. honestly, like the <laughs> like seriously, like that's like the, him being the whole a holdout is a plausible uh, thing, right? Well, yeah. Has he been confirmed for the cast? I don't think I don't think he was in the third one. I just there's like a weird resurgence with eighties movies making like. Very late sequels in so like this more. current age. Um, like, like, you know, like, like with... How many drinks did you have during the break? <laughs> I just finished the one from the start. Wow. The uh, So there was that. There was the Eddie Murphy uh, Beverly Hills Cop 4 news. And then, I think we'll put this in the show notes, there was a uh, morning newscaster in Houston who had a <laughs> monkey, a stunt monkey, on the show mm-hmm. who was one of the stunt monkeys from... Uh, Dr. Doolittle, and the monkey punched her in the face. And it was awesome. It was kind of more like a bitch slap, honestly. Well, I mean, you have to remember, even if that, there was a small monkey. So if the monkey made a full-on fist and punched, it wouldn't have looked that different from what you're calling a bitch slap. True, true. Yeah. I think I'm more afraid of getting punched by a monkey than I am of getting attacked by a shark. Oh, Terrence Stamp is going to be back for the uh, Puppet Troll finale. <gasps> what? Yeah, they haven't had a lot of uh, Victor on Tusk recently, uh, but he's going to be back for the season finale. There are rumors that uh, it will be his last appearance on the show. No. That's what do you mean, rumors? Uh, rumors. Yeah, yeah, the internet, uh, Tumblr is crazy for Paw Patrol. I, I, think, do. I think you know. I do. The but number of Paw Patrol gifts in your Tumblr feed uh, is evidence. insane. I know, yeah. I know, but... I just, this is my bad, but I kind of assume that Terrence Stamp was, like, a recurring star. Like, why is he only going to appear for the finale? Well, they may be doing, you know, after the, the Zach Work situation, I think there may be some retooling in the off season. So they're just going to get rid of one of their other I don't awesome know. I am stars? not privy. I, like, I'm not privy. I'm uh, privy to no more information than you are. And the know. show is a little rudderless. I think it needs yeah. a, a strong hand. I, think I you're don't right. know if I can keep watching it. So we have no letters to the editor this week. So as in accordance with our protocol. I'm going to read a letter to a publication somewhere in this country that I found entertaining or edifying or just uh, pleasant. And I think this one falls in the eh, just pleasant category. All right. All right. This is from the Booth Bay Register in Booth Bay, Maine. Headline of it is a letter of royal thanks. Dear editor, to my utter shock and joy, I was crowned Miss Shrimp Princess on Friday night. And I'm writing this letter to say thank you to some very important people in my life. To my mom, thank you for the time taking the time to do my nails, makeup, and hair. I love you. To my daddy, thank you for sharing your love of music with me and playing your guitar for me. I love you. A big thank you to all the people who donate their time to the pageant. It couldn't exist without you. To all my fellow contestants, you guys are all winners to me. 
I have enjoyed being part of Fisherman's Festival this year. It was a lot of fun. And that's from Kara Jane Wilds Pitcher of Booth Bay, Maine. She's the she's the shrimp princess. Did you ever do pageants at all? No. Did you ever have friends who did pageants? No. Really? No. Nope. You're like a good good little Methodist Southern girl. And you had no friends who did pageants? No, not at all. Wow. Um, that pink that pink gin has gotten to your face. You are super flush right now. Probably. Yeah. I I was gonna say um I did have a friend who didn't do pageants, but uh, I happened to be with her when we watched Pet Cemetery for the first time. So <laughs> okay. Maine. I'm I'm. So, because that letter is from Maine, one of our 50 states, your instant association was with, with Pet Cemetery. Well, with Stephen King at large. Right. Well, okay. And Fred Gwynn. Harvard yeah, graduate Fred Gwynn. Basically, yeah. Okay. Well, the entire time you were reading that, I was just picturing it in uh, Fred Gwynn's voice. But I'm sorry. That, that That's my bad. So, did you like the pink gin? Uh, no, not at all. Well, you're, you know, your mouth says no, but your flushed cheeks say heck yes. I mean, I had one, and yes, it was heavy on the booze, and I realize I'm a little drunk, but I'm just saying that no, it was not a tasty experience. Well, yeah, so if you like Manhattans, and you want a martini that tastes as much like a Manhattan as a drink that is essentially all gin can... Then you should probably just drink a regular martini. Then you martini. should try the pink gin. <laughs> I'm just saying. Was... Hey, we're going to be back next week with another drink. You know what we're going to drink? Something ginny. What was I thinking? I was also, uh, oh, perhaps a Bronx next week. Ooh. Hey, that'll be good, because that's like a 30s drink, right? Uh, yeah. Sort of? Yeah. So, And I think next week we're going to watch the Peter Bogdanovich uh, musical from the 70s at Long Last Love. So that'll be a good pairing. So, as always, uh, I'm Josh Lucas. I've enjoyed spending some time with you. I hope you do it again next week. And for Kate, I'm Josh. And for Josh, I'm Kate. Please spend time with us again. We really do appreciate it, and thank you for listening. People don't want to hear you laugh. It's not the fucking morning zoo.